Hello, and welcome to the teaching ministry of Impact Family Church. For more information, including service times and directions, or to find out more about us, you can visit our website at www.impactfamilychurch.com. We trust you'll be blessed by today's message. Well, turn with me in your Bible to the third epistle of John. We want to read our our, uh, foundational text that we've been looking at. Uh, in the series I've been teaching, Third John, <clears throat> verse number two says, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. As we've pointed out many times, this wasn't just John uh, writing to his friend. This was the Holy Spirit speaking through the Apostle John, and it didn't just apply, apply to his friend Gaius, it applies to Christians and believers everywhere. And so this is the will of God that we prosper in all things. All, how many things are all things? Well, they're all things. Every kind of prosperity you can think of is included in this verse. He said, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health even as your soul prospers. We pointed out that there's three levels or three categories of prosperity here. There's spiritual prosperity, of course, which is most important. There's physical prosperity, he said, because I want you to be in health. And then there's financial or material prosperity that is part of every other kind of prosperity. And that's included in the will of God for our life, amen? And so um, uh, picking up over a couple of things we said last Sunday, I want you to go back with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We were looking at this verse of scripture, but because of the controversy that often uh, uh, is around this verse of scripture, there's a lot of disagreement about it. And so we want to examine it from the word of God, exactly what this verse of scripture means. And so 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Verse number nine says, for, we, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich. Now the controversy around this verse is, uh, takes the shape of people cannot decide and people argue back and forth was this talking about actual, natural riches and prosperity or is it speaking figuratively of, of Jesus being made, though he was rich spiritually, yet for your sakes he became poor spiritually. And so that this is a figurative uh, illustration of the, of, the, of the subject at hand. And so that's the big controversy. Most people read this verse and immediately assign a spiritual interpretation to this. Most people have a difficult time reading this and imagining that it's actually talking about natural, physical, or 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 financial riches and poverty. And the reason they think so is because they believe that Jesus lived a poor life. That when he came here, even though he did lay aside his power and glory, that when he took upon himself the mantle of humanity, that he was born into poverty and he lived an impoverished life. And then he gave us, uh, he he took our uh, spiritual poverty upon him 
and blessed us with spiritual uh, riches and, and blessing. And so they, ca- they cannot believe that he became poor physic- naturally so that we would be made rich naturally. They say, no, it has to apply to the spirit. Well, let's examine that today and see exactly uh, from the scripture what this verse is talking about. There are some fundamental rules for Bible interpretation, just some fundamental rules that any serious student of the Bible ought to know. All serious students of the Bible know these fundamental rules of Bible interpretation. The first rule is, who is talking, who's he talking to, and what is he talking about? You can, you can solve a lot of questions about the Bible just asking those questions. When the verse of scripture is read, who's doing the talking? Who is speaking this? And who are they talking to? And what are they talking about? Well, who is, who is doing the, the talking here? Can anybody answer? Paul. But can, can you even give a, a, a more significant answer than that? The Holy Spirit, because like I just said a, a few minutes ago, that all scripture is God-breathed, comes by the inspiration of God. And holy men of old spake as they were moved on by the Holy Ghost. So even though Paul wrote this, we understand that he wrote by the inspiration of the Spirit. So it would be correct to say the Holy Spirit is speaking through the Apostle Paul. That's who's doing the talking. The Holy Spirit is talking through the Apostle Paul. Who is he talking to? Well, he's talking to the church at Corinth. Paul was talking. This letter is addressed to the the church at Corinth. But we know if it's addressed to the church at Corinth, it's it's addressed to the church anywhere. And if it's addressed to the church anywhere, then it's addressed to the church here. In High Springs and right here in this congregation. And, And you can say it's addressed to me. Each one of us can say the Holy Spirit was speaking through the Apostle Paul and he was speaking to me. This verse is God speaking to me and speaking to you. And then what is he talking about? Well, that's the big question. Did this verse mean that Jesus, though he was rich spiritually, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich, he became poor on the cross, so forth, and that through his poverty you might become rich. Is that what it's talking about? Well, to find out, what we've answered the question, who's talking, who they're talking to, what are they talking about? Well, the only way to find out what he's talking about is to look at the context. And I've taught you before about the importance of context. One of the most critical or basic uh, kinds of context is the actual passage context. You can't interpret scripture correctly if you take it out of the context in which it was written or spoken. And really to get the context of this verse, we have to start back at the very first verse of this chapter. If you look at the, of the book of 2 Corinthians, you see that uh, in the 6th and the 7th chapter, he's talking about uh, a number of things, but there is a distinct change of topic when you leave the the seventh chapter and begin in the eighth chapter. Now, we know a lot of times uh, the way the books of the Bible have been broken into chapter and verse that a lot of times something that's under discussion in one chapter uh, 
We don't understand why the people that broke this into chapter and verse, why they divided it where it did because the verse, the last verse of the previous chapter and the first verse of the, of the next chapter is basically part of the same sentence and the same statement. And so sometimes that uh, doesn't help us. This is one time where this chapter division is actually accurate. And we don't have time to read the 6th and 7th chapter, but if you read those 6th and 7th chapters today, you would know that, that when you start in the 8th chapter, there's a complete change of topic. So let's start in the 8th. Will, will you bear with me a minute? And let's read all of these verses because we want to find out what is he talking about. In verse number nine, what is he talking about? Well, he's talking about what he started talking about in verse one. And actually, to get the full context, we even have to read over into the ninth chapter. So let's read together this morning and find out what the context is. In chapter eight, verse number one, it says, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded to the riches of their liberality or their generosity. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we should receive the gift and the fellowship of the, of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. I speak not by the commandment, of, uh, not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. He told them that the churches uh, had taken up an offering to minister to the saints, the churches of Macedonia, that there was a great grace of God upon them that enabled them to give even beyond their ability. They were struggling themselves with lack. He said, out of their deep poverty, but out of the riches of their joy. And, and they, they gave generously, even though they didn't really have it to give. And he said that was an act of the grace of God on their part. And he said, now, he said, I'm encouraging you to participate in the same spirit in which they did. He said, so I'm sending Titus to you uh, so that you can, uh, uh, so that he can help you in this regard. So in verse number nine, he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor that you through his poverty might become rich. And in this I give advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you also must complete the doing of it that as there was a readiness to desire it, so there also may be a completion out of those things which you have. For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by an equality that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack and their abundance may also supply your lack that there may be an equality. As it is written, Quoting from the Old Testament, he who gathered much had nothing left over and he who gathered little had no lack. 
But thanks be to God who puts the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted the exhortation, but being more diligent, he went to you of his own accord. And we have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. And not only that, but who was also chosen by the churches to travel with us with this gift which is ministered by us to the glory of the Lord himself and to show your ready mind. Avoiding this, that anyone should blame us in this lavish gift which is administered by us, providing things honorable not only in the sight of the Lord but also in the sight of men. And we have sent with them our brother whom we have often proved diligent in many things but now much more diligent because of the great confidence we have in you. If anyone requires about Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker concerning you. Or if our brethren are in brethren are inquired about. They are the messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. Therefore show to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. So Paul sent a delegation uh, headed up by Titus and there were some other persons not named there that traveled with him to go to the church of Corinth and to receive this offering and so that they could then do the same thing that they had promised a year before. A year before, this need of the, of the church in Jerusalem had been presented to them and they were stirred up and they said, we will participate. But the churches of Macedonia had already done their part. The Corinthian church had not fulfilled what they said they would do. They hadn't done what they said yet. And so Paul sent Titus and these other men to go there and receive their offering. And, uh, and he said that uh, he sent these other men to go with Titus so that this lavish gift, Paul was expecting a very generous offering from the church at Corinth. He said, so that no one blames us or blames these men in the administration of this lavish gift. You know, he just had one man going. Then people could point their fingers and say, well, you know, Titus went and, you know, we gave so much, but then, you know, I think maybe he stuck some of it in his pocket, you know, didn't give it all. And so they sent three, at least three men, Titus and two others that went with them so that he said, we want to provide things honest, not only in the sight of God. You know, God sees everything. Everything's open to the Lord, but people don't see everything. And by having two or three men with him, then that provided the safety because then, you know, it's very unlikely that three honorable men would agree together to defraud the church. Isn't that right? So that was the reason for that. But notice he said, we sent him uh, uh, avoiding this that anyone should blame us in this lavish gift. So God, so the Apostle Paul was expecting the church at Corinth to give generously. Let's continue in chapter nine. Now concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you. For I know your willingness about which I boast of you to the Macedonians that Achaia was ready a year ago and your zeal has stirred up the majority. Yet I have sent the brethren lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect that, as I said, you may be ready. Lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation." 
But thus I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one of you there in Achaia, he said, give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work, as it is written, he has dispersed abroad, he has given to to the poor, his righteousness and forever. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality which causes thanksgiving through us to God. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints but also is abounding through many thanksgiving to God. While through the proof of this ministry they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men. And by their prayer for you, who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And so when we look at at, uh, chapter number nine, verse number eight, when we look at this verse in its context, what is the context about? Is there anything in this passage from 8.1 to 9.15? Is there anything in these passages that would indicate a spiritual uh, interpretation of giving and receiving? There isn't anything except possibly verse number 9, and that's the verse in question. But the way we determine what verse 9 is talking about is to look at the other verses in its context. And again, I ask the question, is there anything in this context that would indicate that uh, it's talking about uh, a spiritual concept? No, everything in this chapter has to do with actual money, with actual hands-on, real-life, nitty-gritty offerings of, of money. Amen? Now, one of the laws of Bible interpretation, this is again one of the fundamental laws, is first, you always interpret a scripture literally. It just simply means what it says. That's that's one of the foundational laws of Bible interpretation is you start out interpreting all scripture literally. It just means what it says. Another uh, interpretation, law of of Bible interpretation is the most likely interpretation is most likely the right interpretation. I'm going to say that again. The most likely interpretation is most likely the right interpretation. And so what what that means is sometimes people take a verse, uh, and we're not necessarily talking about this verse, but, but it applies, you see it a lot of times. They take a verse and, and it means one thing and then they read another interpretation into it. And the way that you can see that, uh, that you're on dangerous ground is whenever you read this other, interpre- uh, this other interpretation into it and people go, oh, I never thought of that. Wow, I never saw that. That's a good sign that that's not likely the right interpretation because the, the, the most likely interpretation is the interpretation that is most likely. In other words, whatever is it most likely means is likely what it means. And, it, and it's not likely that it means something else when it likely means what it means. 
Does that make any sense to you? Amen. Another rule of, of Bible interpretation, we've already said that first of all, you always start with the scripture interpreting what it says literally. It just means what it says. Can anybody see the value in that? Can anybody see if you, depart, if you abandon that rule of interpretation, boy, the Bible is open to all kinds of interpretations. It first of all means what it means. Now, the other side of that is, and this is another rule of Bible interpretation, and that is that spiritualization, spiritualization of a verse is only warranted when a literal translation is not possible. Spiritualization of a verse is only warranted when a literal translation of the verse is not possible. I'll give you a couple examples. Remember, I think it was last Sunday, or it might have been Wednesday on one of the services recently. Uh, you know, Jesus said, if a man uh, comes after me and follows me and does not hate his mother and his father and his wife and his children and his aunt uh, Ethel and Uncle Fred and, and, and hate everybody, he cannot be my disciple. Well, now you know that that can't be taken literally because it contradicts other verses of Scripture. We're supposed to love one another. Husbands are told to love their wives, not hate their wives. So when Jesus said, if a man comes after me and doesn't hate his wife and his children and so forth, he can't be my disciple, you know that it's impossible to take that verse literally on its face that a man just has to cut everybody off and hate everybody. So there has to be another interpretation. He has to be talking and using this as, a, as an illustration of something else. And so we found out that what that simply means is that com in comparison to our love for our family, the love of God has to over eclipse everything else. In comparison to the love we have to God, it's as if we don't even love our family by comparison. We have to love that God that much more. That's all that means. Another example of that is remember when Jesus said, uh, uh, if any man comes after me, he must eat my flesh and drink my blood. You remember that? You remember what happened when he said that? Some people fall, fell away. Some people stopped following. They said, this is a hard saying. If a man, unless a man eats my flesh and drinks my blood, well, you know, that couldn't be taken literally. It's not possible to take that because to begin with, there'd only be a handful of people that could do that. And we couldn't do that today. We don't have his blood and his flesh. Now, listen, I don't, I'm not attacking anybody, anybody not a denomination just for the sake of it, but that denomination that says when, when they receive communion that the elements of the communion, the, the bread and the juice actually become the body and the blood of Jesus, that's not true. I mean, that's just ridiculous. No, the blood and the body of the Lord Jesus Christ isn't available today. Therefore, nobody else could partake of it. It'd be ghastly if they did. Isn't that right? So there are times when certain scriptures cannot be taken literally, and that's the time when spiritualization then is warranted. Well, we do know that this verse of scripture can be taken literally and, and that it can just mean what it says. Well, does it mean what it says? Well, uh, this passage, if you look at it and, and study the way it's constructed, it speaks strongly of the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Notice how it reads. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, 
Yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Notice there's an exchange here. This is a classic substitutionary uh, construction of this verse. I'll give you another example. Go back a page, excuse me, to chapter 5, verse number 21. For he made him, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Do you see that substitutionary uh, 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 thought there? How that Jesus, though he was righteous, he took our unrighteousness so that we could take his righteousness. Well, that's a substitutionary uh, type of passage. Well, in 8, 9... Chapter 8, 9, you have that same idea. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes sakes he became poor that you through his poverty might be rich. Now, uh, Jesus, a lot of people have the idea that, that, that this is talking about spiritual prosperity because they don't see Jesus as rich in the natural. They don't believe Jesus was rich when he was on the earth. They see Jesus as being poor. But I don't have time to go into the verses today, but I've taught on this before. You could get a, a CD of it and listen to my messages on that. But I have proven overwhelmingly that Jesus was not a poor man in his earthly ministry. He was born not in poverty. He was born in a manger because there was no room for him in the end. That means they searched for a room for him, for Mary and Joseph did, and couldn't find one because there were no rooms available. Well, you don't search for a room at the end unless you have money to rent a room at the end. Isn't that right? So Jesus did not begin in poverty. He was in, born in a manger because of the circumstances surrounding Bethlehem at that time. There were so many people that had come together, you know, for, uh, for this registration and the, and the rooms were just, but there was no vacancy signs everywhere they, everywhere they went. We also know that they brought the, the wise men when Jesus was just a young child, about two years old, they brought him uh, all this treasure of gold and, and these costly in. Uh, incense and different things. And so uh, Jesus began his life with a lot of money. And so we could go on and on, but we don't have time to do that today. Jesus was not poor. And so this verse isn't talking about uh, a, uh, 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 him being poor in his earthly ta- life. It's talking about what happened on the cross because this is a substitutionary verse. Jesus always had plenty in his earthly ministry, but on the cross, he became poor. On the cross, they stripped everything from him. And he went from riches to poverty. Now, I'll just take a side journey here. I'm getting way ahead of myself, but that's okay. What does riches, what does it mean that Jesus was rich? Does that mean that Jesus had a condo, you know, in Capernaum and a, and a vacation villa, you know, in, uh, uh, you know, in someplace else and, and had, uh, you know, a stable full of the finest thoroughbred horses and had a bunch of chariots, you know, and, and uh, no, that's not what that means. Now, riches in the Old Testament includes all those things. 
the different patriarchs and the different people of, of, uh, of significance in the Old Testament, they had silver and gold and, and riches and pro, you know, property and, and, and herds of cattle and, and goat and sheep and all of those, those things that, that uh, identified prosperity. They had all those things. King Solomon had that. King David had that. The patriarchs before them had that. We get over in the New Testament. Jesus didn't have those things because he couldn't use those things. It wasn't necessary. It would have been foolish for Jesus to amass that kind of physical treasure and property. He was an itinerant minister. He traveled constantly going from one place to the next place and he didn't even own a home of his own but he always stayed in nice accommodations. He stayed with Mary and Martha and Lazarus and their nice home. He stayed with Peter and his uh, and Andrew and their very nice home. Jesus always had everything he needed to fulfill the call of God on his life. When it came time for taxes, he could go fishing and get uh, a gold coin out of the mouth of a fish. Jesus knew how to live prosperous. He it would it would have been. Uh, uh, unnecessary and an encumbrance for him to have had a lot of property and, and natural physical wealth. Uh, and, and not only that, he was only going to minister for three and a half years and then be crucified. And so it wasn't practical because of his assignment and what he was sent to do, and that was to seek and save the lost. And so Jesus wasn't a millionaire or, or rich in that sense, but he was rich in the sense that he had a full supply. He had a full supply. That's really what the Bible means when it talks about being rich. It means to have a full supply. And that might mean millions of dollars and a vacation villa and, and uh, you know, all of these elaborate uh, trappings. It may mean those things. If you can use those things and they'd be beneficial to you. But uh, 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 it might not necessarily mean that. It just means having a full supply. So Jesus, though he was rich, Yet for your sakes he became poor that you through his poverty might become rich. Now this is a, a classic substitutionary type of verse. So we have to find if that's true according to the Old Testament. Let's turn to Isaiah 53 and look at the great substitutionary sacrifice uh, passage in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 53 And let's look at verse four. Surely he has borne our griefs, our sicknesses, and carried our sorrows, our pains. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But notice, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement for our peace was upon him. We pointed out last week that the word peace there, the word shalom in the Hebrew, doesn't just only mean peace. It means safe, be well, be happy. It means welfare. It means health. It means rest. And it also means material and financial prosperity. So when someone greeted someone in the Old Testament and among the Jews, it means the same thing today. When they say shalom it, when, as a greeting, it means be well, be healthy, be prosperous, be safe, uh, uh, be at rest. And so this word here in, in, in verse number five 
It says the chastisement for our safety, the chastisement for our happiness, our our welfare, our health, and our material prosperity was upon him. The Amplified Bible says the chastisement, the punishment, needful to obtain peace and well-being for us was upon him. Notice the word, the chastisement for our peace. That tells us that poverty was a chastisement of God. And you can see that in the book of Genesis. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they lived in a, uh, a place of abundance. They lived in the Garden of Eden where everything was provided. All they had to do was to tend to the garden. They didn't have to plant the garden. All they had to do was to tend. That word simply means to shepherd. They had to take care of the garden. But as soon as Adam and Eve fell by sin, they were driven out of the garden. And God said, now by the, you will earn your living by the sweat of your brow and that the earth will produce thorns and thistles and, and you'll have a very difficult and laborious life and the, and the earth will be cursed for your sake and it will not yield its fruit very easily. Well, that is falling from riches into poverty. That happened as soon as man sinned and and spiritual death came into his his spirit. He also immediately experienced uh, 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 poverty and lack. And so we see that poverty and lack then is a, a punishment or a consequence of sin. And it says here in verse five that the chastisement or the punishment necessary to obtain peace and that includes prosperity, was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Now, as I've looked into this just in the last week, I've I've gained some insight that I hadn't had before. I've just seen some things in in a light that has really blessed me, and so uh, this is the reason I'm pointing this out to you. I'll give you uh, more insight as we go along. Verse 6 and verse 7 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The beginning of verse seven says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. The Young's literal translation of this passage reads like this. This is verse six and the first part of verse number seven. It says, all of us like sheep have wandered, each to his own way we have turned and Jehovah has caused to meet on him the punishment of us all. It, this is the part that's really interesting. Young's translation says, it hath been exacted and he hath answered. I want to read that again. It hath been exacted and he hath answered. I looked up the word exact and the word exact, it's a verb and it means to demand vigorously the full amount of, to require as a matter of strict justice without making any concessions whatsoever to demand rigorously the full amount of, to require as a matter of strict justice without making any concessions whatsoever. It says, it hath been exacted. What has been exacted? The punishment. Jehovah has caused to meet on him or to fall on him the punishment of us all. And it has been demanded rigorously the full payment of, and it's been required as a matter of strict justice without making any concessions whatsoever. So the full amount of punishment, 
the full measure of punishment for sin, it says, was fell and was meted out to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that the full payment as a matter of strict justice was required without making any concessions whatsoever. Well, if, if poverty is one of the consequences of sin and we see conclusively that it is beginning in the book of Genesis and going all through the, the, the history of mankind. There was no lack in the earth until man sinned. In the book of Deuteronomy, the Bible says, talking to the children of Israel, if you do not obey these commandments, then all of these curses will come upon you. Cursed you will be in the city. Cursed you will be in the field. Cursed will be your crops and your livestock and your, and, and your cattle and everything you have. So we can see that lack, not having enough, poverty, whatever you want to call it, has always been described as one of the consequences of sin. Well, when Jesus took our sin on the cross, he bore our iniquity. That not only means the iniquity itself, it means the shame of iniquity and it means the consequences and punishments of iniquity. And so this verse tells us that it was exacted of him. It was vigorously required as a matter of strict judgment. The full measure of it. Well, if Jesus didn't bear any, if there, let me say it this way, if there was any aspect or any slight measure of the punishment of sin and the uh, consequence of sin, if there was any degree of that that he didn't bear, then he did not bear it all. Then he didn't bear it all. If he left anything on the table, then he didn't bear it all and then we have to bear it. But the scripture says that he bore our sin and its consequences, the full punishment of, amen, the full amount of, without making any concessions whatsoever. Glory to God. So we know that affords with the New Testament. Go over with us to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 reads this way. Verse number 13 Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Christ has redeemed us, purchased our freedom from the curse of the law. We know the curse of the law, again, looking through the Old Testament, is real clear the curse of the law was threefold. It was, first of all, spiritual death. It's always followed by natural death. Sickness and poverty. Those, that's the threefold, threefold curse of the law. And it says here, Jesus has redeemed us from the curse of the law. That means he has purchased our freedom from the curse of spiritual death, from the curse of sickness and disease, from the curse of poverty and lack. Amen. Verse 14, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through, through faith. Well, what is the blessing of Abraham? Amen. If you obey these commandments of mine, all these blessings shall come upon you. Blessed shall you be in the city and in the field. Blessed shall you be coming in and going out. Blessed shall be your livestock. Blessed shall be your crops. Blessed shall, shall, be, shall be your barns and your storage houses. And blessed shall be your children and so forth. So the blessing of Abraham is abundance. So Jesus Christ redeemed us, purchased our freedom from the curse 
of all that was associated with the fall of man and that definitely included lack. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon not just the Jew, but the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. That includes prosperity. Now, here's the thing that's really important. This is what I want you to get. Why is it so important that our prosperity is included in the redemptive work of Christ? Why is that such a big deal? Why is that, why is that such a significant fact? Well, first of all, because God created man to exercise dominion in the earth. Remember Genesis 1, God created man, said, let them have dominion over the entire earth, over everything that moves and operates in the earth. God created man to exercise dominion in the earth. That's why man is here. God placed man here and gave mankind the assignment of of having dominion over everything that he created, all the works of his hand, which would include silver, gold, all the resources of of the planet, anything that you can think about as a resource, God placed man here to have dominion over it. The psalmist said he put him over all the works of his hands. Isn't that right? Well, uh, God put everything in the earth for man. There's not anything in the earth that God put here that he didn't put here for us. Now, the secularists of the day, they say man is is, is an intruder in the earth. And that man is the culprit, man is the problem. And if we could just get rid of mankind, then the earth could return to its former state and flourish again because man is abusing the earth. Well, that's not a biblical worldview. That's not a biblical view at all. God put everything on this planet and everything in this earth for the sake of man. That's why there is copper in the mountains. That's why there is iron in, in, in below ground. That's why there is oil and natural gas. That's why there is gold and silver. That's why all of the, of the resources of the, earth, of the earth are here. They're here for man. God put everything on the planet for the sake of his man. He created this planet to be a place of abundance, a place of, 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 uh, of fullness for the man, uh, his man to flourish in the earth. That's why God put it all here. Amen. Well, dominion over everything would include dominion over the wealth of the earth. When, when God said have dominion, he meant to have dominion not only over the trees and the, and the lives, you know, stock and the animal kingdom and so forth, but have dominion over everything. That would include all of the valuable resources of the earth. So dominion in the earth included prosperity, dominion over wealth. Now we also see this. We're, at, we're answering the question why this is so important. We see Jesus... Go go over to Hebrews real quick. Turn to Hebrews 2. So I've just never seen it that way. I've never seen, in other words, I've never seen man have dominion. We don't don't see man exercising dominion. That's exactly what the scripture says here. Verse number 6, Hebrews 2, 6, but one testified in a certain place saying, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man? 
that you take care of him. You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, talking about man, he left nothing that is not put under him. Well, if he left nothing that's not put under him, then the gold and silver and wealth has to be put under him. Notice the next sentence. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. We don't see man exercising that kind of dominion. But we see Jesus. See that? But we see Jesus. See, Jesus in his earthly life, he demonstrated dominion over everything. Did he not? He he. He, de- he demonstrated dominion over sin. Every time the devil tried to tempt him to do wrong, he said, it is written. He overcame every single time. He never sinned. There was no sin, no guile found in his mouth whatsoever. He overcome uh, the temptation to sin. He overcome Satan. Every time Satan tried to tempt him, he would say, it is written. And then he would say, get out of here. Jesus overcame every test of the devil Jesus exercised dominion over demons and evil spirits. They never had a chance around him. As soon as they raised their ugly head, he threw them out. He cast them out. He ran them off. He exercised dominion over sickness and disease. No sickness and disease could stand before him all the days of his earthly life. He exercised dominion over it. He exercised dominion over the laws of nature. He walked on water and helped and, and had Peter do it too. Isn't that right? I mean, he, he more times than one, he, he calmed the storm, stood up in the, in, the, in the bow of the boat in a raging storm and spoke to the, to the land and to the water and to the, to the atmosphere, said, peace, be still, and everything calmed down. He raised the dead. I mean, he turned water into wine. He, he put aside the laws of nature when necessary. Think about that. Jesus jump ahead again a little bit. Did you know Jesus rarely took the title of son of God? Now, don't before you go out of here and say, I'm preaching something, I'm, I'm not preaching. Let me be clear. Jesus was the son of God. But most of the times in the gospel, when the statement about Jesus being the son of God, they almost always came from somebody else. The disciples said, I believe you are the son of God. Even when he was before Pilate, they said, are you the son of God? Jesus said, well, you say it. One time he, he said, why are you angry with me? Because I said I am the son of God. But there's not an actual record of him having said that. They accused him of saying that. And he just said, why, why, why would you mad at, be mad at me for saying I am the son of God? But Jesus did not Uh, There's not a record of him going around claiming to be the son of God. He over like 50 something times referred to himself as the son of, say it again, son of, son of man. Jesus came here though he was God. Get that clear and everybody's thinking. Jesus was God, is God. But he came here as a man and he constantly referred to himself as the son of man. And that's what this verse in, that we just read in, in Hebrews talks about. What is, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him? That's a re- reference to the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as, a, as, a, as the son of man, 
We know that Jesus came here, though he was God, he, he laid aside, he emptied himself, Philippians says, of his power and glory. He laid aside his divine power, his, those attributes of deity, he laid all of that aside and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made as a man. As a man, Jesus put aside the laws of nature. He defied the laws of physics when it was important to do so. Think about that a little bit. And we think we've stretched ourselves in faith a little bit. Jesus put as, a, as the son of man, demonstrating the dominion that God gave Adam in the beginning, Jesus did all these things. As the son of man, he demonstrated dominion over all his enemies. They'd come out against him and he would just turn around, walk through the midst, just walk right through the middle of them. They couldn't touch him. He demonstrated his dominion over material resources. I've already referred to the fact that when it was time to, to pay you know, the tax bill, he told the disciples, he said, go out and catch a fish. The first one that you pull up, look into its mouth. They did so and there was a, enough money in that fish's mouth to pay their taxes. Everywhere Jesus went, he always had enough. He lived with people who were well-to-do, people like Mary and Martha and Lazarus and, and, and some of the other women that, that followed him and ministered to him of their resources. Jesus knew how to take dominion over everything in this earth, including material things. Well, God created Adam and created mankind to exercise dominion in the earth. It includes everything in the earth. Jesus demonstrated that. Jesus Christ was the embodiment of the dominion of man. As the son of man, he modeled dominion in the earth for born again men. He is our example Oh, I want to be like Jesus, do you? <laughs> Amen. He mo Jesus modeled dominion in the earth. He was the, the embodiment of it. And we've already seen that man's dominion could not be fully restored unless it included redemption from lack. Man's dominion could not be fully restored unless it included redemption from lack. And here's the importance of that. This is why this is so important. A lot of people have the idea that prosperity is just something that's available, that God prospers us in answer to prayer, and if we give, he will bless us, and that it's a, it's a blessing that's redemption's over here, but then there's a blessing over there. It's in another category. It's not in another category. It came through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's on the cross that he bore our sins. It's on the cross that he bore our sickness. It's on the cross that he bore our lack and our poverty. It's on the cross he gave us his righteousness. It's on the cross he gave us his healing for by his stripes we are healed. It's on the cross that he gave us prosperity. We can no more 
leave prosperity on the table than we could leave any of the other provisions of Calvary. At Impact Family Church, it is our desire to see you blessed through the power of the Word of God. We have been helping people to change their world for over 25 years through our dynamic ministries and teaching. If you are going to be in the North Central Florida area and are interested in attending our services or just want more information about us, you can visit us online at www.impactfamilychurch.com.